welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. If you're watching us on YouTube, go over to Counterpunch, get your subscription to Counterpunch Plus. It's a, of course, it's a small subscription fee, but it gives you access to all of the great columns, all of the features that we used to have in a print publication that used to come in the mail. Of course, we're modernized like everyone else is, and that publication has been put to rest, but Counterpunch Plus is available online subscribe and most importantly that's how you support counterpunch we've been around for the for 30 years we're going to do at least another 30 get on board help us provide all of these perspectives on the left critical perspectives oftentimes at each other's throats as we all know if we're reading counterpunch regularly go over to the website do the thing really appreciate it and of course when i'm talking about all these voices and critical perspectives i always try to then segue into bringing one of those voices with critical perspectives into the conversation and i do have one with me today i'm very very happy and privileged to speak with khalid madani uh, khalid is the director of the institute of islamic studies and the chair of the african studies program in the department of political science and the islamic in- islamic studies institute at mcgill university University. Even more importantly, you should get yourselves a copy of Khalid's book, Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa from Cambridge University Press last year. Khalid Madani, welcome to Counterpunch. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. Uh, It's all our honor to have you here. Your book is excellent. Your work is excellent. And of course, I have you on the program to talk about Sudan. So much happening in Sudan. Unfortunately, with everything going on, Russia, Ukraine, nuclear war, killer whales, killing humans, all kinds of things happening. People are not paying nearly enough attention to Sudan. And I know this is probably often the case with Africa and with conflicts in Africa. So I want to give some attention to Sudan because not only is it important in and of itself, but it's important internationally. There's all kinds of players involved. There's all kinds of perspectives competing in Sudan. So let's talk about that. I guess let's begin at the very beginning. Khalid, I'm going to ask you an absolutely absurd question. Could you please condense a tremendous amount of Sudanese history for us into a very small package? Tell us a little bit about Sudan's history and how the modern Sudan came to be. Thank you very much. Uh, First of all, thank you for the coverage of Sudan. You're absolutely right. It affects not only the region of the Horn of Africa, the Sahel, the Middle East, but as we'll discuss perhaps a little bit later, the entire globe, including the war in the Ukraine. Um, And I think that that is something many many of your listeners may not be aware of, but we can talk about that. Absolutely. It's difficult, of course, to summarize any country's history. But in the case of Sudan, I think it's important for your listeners to understand that prior to its independence in 1956, uh, prior to that and the colonial period, which began um, approximately in the very early 19th century, 1805 or or so, when the British colonized Sudan, that I should say very briefly that uh, the pre-colonial history is a very rich one in the sense that um, this is a region and a country that uh, where uh, you had um, in the third century BC, I'm not going to belabor the entire history, the kingdoms of Kush, of uh, Medawi, of Kerma. Um, in the 16th century, the sultanates of Darfur and the Funj in the western part of Sudan and in the central part of the Sudan. Um, but the beginning of the modern state of Sudan really begins in 1821, uh, when you had uh, the Egyptian leader, Muhammad Ali from Egypt, invade 
invading Sudan and begins to not only uh, colonize the northern part of the country, but also uh, build the infrastructure of what became a modern state. Um, that led to the beginning of what we see today in terms of the boundaries of the country. But those became formalized um, in the early um, 1800s when the British uh, colonized Sudan uh, for a number of reasons. One of them was to safeguard their possession of Egypt, which is so important. Um, and another reason, of course, the British uh, colonized Sudan was to safeguard the Nile waters as, as a strategic asset and also in competition against the French and the Belgians, particularly the French in East Africa. And there was a very famous conflict and war um, uh, called the War of Fashoda in uh, the uh, central part of Sudan in the 1800s that really uh, solidified um, the British control over Sudan, which was really important. Uh, the British colonial period, uh, very briefly, was extremely important and formative. Um, it is this period between um, 1805 to 1899, approximately, uh, that the British uh, ruled Sudan, and they ruled it, and this is very crucial, separately. They ruled northern Sudan, which houses the majority of Arab and Muslim populations uh, separately from uh, southern Sudan, which of course gained independence in 2011. This becomes important. The British colonial period uh, practiced as they had in other African countries and, and throughout the, the globe, a divide and rule policy in which they legislated something called the Closed District Ordinance. Uh, that forbid any trade or cultural exchange uh, by northern Sudanese with their southern counterparts. Um, this, of course, laid the groundwork for divisions, not only economic divisions, but also cultural and religious divisions between North and South. Um, and so this was a very important aspect of that. Uh, the British, for your listeners, may uh, be interested in knowing were kicked out uh, of Sudan um, through a war uh, led by an Islamist uh, or Muslim leader by the name of Muhammad Ahmed al-Mahdi in the mid-1800s. Uh, the British then come in, the, in 1899 and reconquer Sudan under Governor uh, Lord Kitchener at the time. And that begins the formative uh, and strong colonial history. Uh, following independence, I'm going to speed it up a little bit, in 1956, uh, you had what was already put in place, the division uh, culturally and economically between the North and South, between Arabized groups and Muslim groups in the North, and uh, Christian elites in the South and others following African traditional religions in the South. Um, and so in 1956, even before uh, the, the independence of 56 in 1955, you had the beginning of a, a long civil war between North and South that continued with a bit of an interruption through a peace agreement in the 1970s, but then resurfaces even stronger in 1983. Um, from eight, 1983 to 2011, you had um, a real constant uh, civil war between the North and the South uh, and that um, eventually culminated in the in the fight for um, uh, independence on the part of Southern Sudanese and South Sudan seceded as you're as you may know, in 2011. So um, a country that was the largest in the con continent of Africa uh, partitioned, and very few countries in Africa have done so, only Eritrea uh, as uh, one example. And so this is really important uh, to emphasize as the kind of the genesis of the civil war and the legacies of colonialism in Sudan. But one thing that would lead us to the kind of contemporary period, Eric, in, and that is the 1989 military coup that was led uh, by an Islamist faction in the country. 
Uh, that um, really led to one of the strongest authoritarian regimes that the country or any African country has experienced. But this time, the ideology was not just authoritarian or socialist or secularist, but rather Islamist. Uh, Sudan becomes then the first and only uh, Muslim Arab Sunni country dominated by an Islamist group for 30 years from 1989 in the summer where the military coup under Omar Bashir uh, was waged all the way up to late 2018 when an unprecedented uh, pro-democracy grassroots revolution upended and overthrew uh, the dictatorship led by the Islamist uh, party known as the National Congress Party, which was led at the time by General Omar Bashir. So this is by way of uh, encapsulating some of the most important critical junctures uh, that your listeners may be aware of. But if you have any further questions, happy to answer them, of course. Well, you did an excellent job encapsulating many decades of history there. So let's let's get into some of the specifics here. I'm just going to do one one more of these uh, for the uninitiated questions. So for those people who maybe only have a peripheral knowledge of Sudan in recent years, I think probably the most likely point of contact would have been during the 2000s in the Bush years and the humanitarian outcry over Darfur. Can you just explain for us again as briefly as possible how that conflict and what we understood about what was going on in Darfur, how that is relevant to the current uh, array of forces. Uh, well, it's de- uh, relevant in two ways. One of them, most importantly, of course, it's relevant to understanding the present conflict, uh, without which we can't really understand uh, the fight between the general of the Sudan, Sudan Armed Forces, Abdel Fateh Burhan, and the militia leader, um, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, known as Hemeti. Um, who actually is a part and parcel and led the Janjaweed in Darfur. Uh, but it is also important, and I think your listeners should know, that it is part and parcel of, of America's foreign policy, and I would argue misguided foreign policy in Sudan. Um, in 2005, uh, the United States was very enthusiastic about brokering, um, you know, as part of a troika um, with uh, the European Union and Norway at the time, uh, the kind of um, resolution to the conflict between North and South. Uh, They brokered a deal um, and rushed it um, and pressured, I would argue, both sides to come to the table. um, And they excluded um, the kind of pro-democracy forces in Sudan. Initially, or essentially, the deal that was brokered essentially by the United States between the leadership of uh, the Islamist um, uh, fundamentalist um, uh, Omar Bashir regime and that of uh, um, Salva Kiir at the moment, uh, previously John Garang was the leader, uh, excluded um, grassroots and civil actors. And what happened, it was really brokered and managed by two authoritarian leaders. The consequences of that for both Sudan and for South Sudan, this ongoing conflict is important. It also precipitated the conflict in Darfur. Uh, many of us, including myself, had uh, discussed and talked to the administration, warning them of the spillover effect of a peace deal between North and South that would not take in, uh, into account the entire country and the grievances of different parts of the conflict. We were told by the administration and Senator Danforth in particular at the time that uh, the United States saw those two as separate conflicts. Uh, following that, the misguided policy of uh, the U.S. in Darfur um, had very much um, its roots in the framing of the, of the conflict in Darfur quickly because of a constellation of domestic coalitions 
including Save Darfur, which you may be familiar with, the framing of that conflict was not one between the center, that is an authoritarian military dictatorship intent on putting down an insurgency because of the wealth of Darfur, an insurgency that began in 2003, essentially in northern Darfur, to ask for the similar dispensation as the South. Uh, but uh, um, really, specifically in 2003, the Sudan Liberation Army in uh, Al-Fashid, in particular in northern Darfur, essentially called for uh, more equitable uh, power and resource sharing. Uh, what they, uh, the response of the central government and Omar Bashir at the time was to enact a scorched earth policy and to finance and organize the Janjaweed militia. Um, that is uh, the real root of the conflict in Darfur, and it continues to be at the root of the conflict. Uh, the reason I say that analysts, in particular on the part of U.S. policy and others, uh, got it wrong, um, um, and of course promoted by lobbyists and even George Clooney and others, and that is the notion that this was a conflict between Arabs and Africans, that it was a cultural conflict. Um, that, of course, obscured the really roots of the conflict, which was essentially a central military dictatorship intent on using any means uh, necessary in order to stamp out uh, what was an insurgency for uh, social and economic justice. Um, the co consequences of that was the promotion of a number of leaders, including Hemeti, including the leader uh, who is uh, currently waging the war against the Sudan Armed Forces. Uh, by 2013, the military dictatorship of Bashir officially recognized in law that the Janjaweed, now reframed as the Rapid Support Forces, would be ancillary to or a branch of uh, the coercive apparatus in the military of uh, the central government. Um, and that is really the beginning of the factionalization of uh, the coercive apparatus, where you have a, a weak standing army uh, led by military leadership appointed by Islamists, and of course, them, they themselves adhering to uh, Islamist politics and ideology, um, and uh, a rival, uh, or initially a partner, now a rival, of a paramilitary militia rooted in the Janjaweed and the conflict in Darfur. Uh, and so here we have, of course, um, uh, two issues. One of them is uh, the problem of uh, a military dictatorship that utilizes uh, scorched earth policies and uses uh, militias as a proxy agent to uh, put down insurgency um, and uh, a misrepresentation uh, and misunderstanding to put it mildly, of a conflict rooted in the lack of legitimacy of the central government and its authoritarian tendencies and refusal to open up the political system for participation and distribute uh, resources in a more equitable fashion, but not a conflict between so-called Arabs uh, versus Africans, which I think has led to the failure of US policy in Darfur. And if we're not careful, it will continue to do so. No question about it. The Orientalist framework there is a common thread with regard to U.S. Uh, policy vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East, North Africa, and other places. But I wanted to just point out, or rather, I wanted to add one other piece to what you were saying, because, of course, the failure of U.S. policy from the diplomatic side, let's call it the State Department or what have you, that is absolutely correct. But I wanted to get your comment on 
the partition of Sudan and the management of that conflict also, at least from the perspective of Washington and the strategic planners, it had the double effect of depriving one of the primary allies of China in Africa, depriving it of oil, depriving it of access to resources and so forth. So do you also see some of what happened in those years as part of the growing, quote unquote, scramble for Africa in the 21st century? Yes, I do. Uh, China comes a little bit late uh, uh, in terms of um, the oil in the South. The majority of oil, your listeners should know, um, uh, practically 90% um, lies in the region of what is today South Sudan. Um, but there's a long history of uh, beginning with Chevron, the American oil company, that really begins, uh, it established the pipeline uh, from South Sudan's oil fields to Port Sudan. Uh, following that, uh, there had been, uh, of course, a lot of conflict because of the Civil War and Chevron decided essentially to sell off its assets uh, to foreign countries, um, including China, by the way. And so um, it's a complicated story of not only geostrategic rivalries, but how oil companies themselves actually collude and cooperate with respect to these kind of assets. Um, I want to mention, and uh, we can't go into it too much, that there is on the ground in Africa cooperation between um, Western and uh, Chinese, uh, not only oil companies, but businesses. And so that is extremely important. Having said that, your point is really extremely well taken. Um, um, that is a part and parcel of uh, that kind of um, a peace agreement that was brokered by the United States. Uh, but my understanding, and uh, I would suggest that the United States had been uh, interested in uh, promoting the separation of South Sudan uh, for a variety of reasons, including domestic pressures and coalitions. And here is where we have to understand domestic politics, a coalition of uh, um, Zionist organizations, African-American organizations, of course, uh, ce celebrities and others, domestic pressures and interest uh, that guided that kind of policy, which was really important. But overall, the strategic interest was to maintain good relations with South Sudan in order to eventually uh, take control and have influence not only of South Sudan policy, but also oil. But by that time, it was too late. Of course, China had uh, taken up the majority of the oil interest, um, and that becomes really an important aspect of uh, the conflict that uh, began. So I think that that is, it's a little bit more complicated situation. China continues to have influence in South Sudan, even following the partition. Um, but I wouldn't suggest that the scramble for Sudan between the U.S. and China is the primary reason for U.S. policy. That is uh, something that uh, is really uh, important to highlight. Now, that does not mean in the current conflict and that we'll talk about that Russia's influence in Sudan and in the Sahel is not central to calculations on the part of U.S. policy. No question about it. That's definitely coming in a few minutes. But let's, uh, if we could, since we are a little short on time, let's flesh out the protest movement, because I have given a little bit of coverage to that here on this show, but it was years ago now. It was pre-COVID when we were really talking about it. Um, and I recall, of course, at the time, one of the really interesting things about the uprising of, uh, at that period was how it was really driven by young people, social media. It really fell into many of those trends that we had seen earlier in the Arab Spring but with unique qualities. So can you just explain a little bit about the protest movement that's, I guess, now emerged about five years ago or so? Um, 
how it led to Bashir's ouster and the changes that it ushered in. But even more importantly, if you could, can you give us an analysis of the movement itself, a class-based analysis? I mean, is it all students and professionals? Are there peasants? Are there industrial workers? How does it shake out in terms of who is actually involved? Well, thank you for that that opportunity. It's really important. The number one thing to understand about the the pro-democracy revolution uh, of 2018 and, and of course, through 2019 is that it it begins many years prior to the revolution. It begins as early, well, some would say when the first popular uprisings uh, following independence that brought down two authoritarian regimes, uh, one in 1964 and one in 1985. Uh, But in terms of the youth-led movement that you're asking me about, it begins as early as 2010 when I began to do research among youth activists in Sudan. Um, And there are a couple of things I want to highlight. Number one, the learning curve that uh, accompanied a cycle of protest and violence. This is a very um, cohesive, um, very um, uh, kind of uh, consciousness raising movement and one that was organized over uh, more than a decade. It was a process in which young people in particular understood that the only way to defeat such a strong authoritarian military establishment or leadership was to do uh, a couple of things. One of them was to organize um, horizontal networks and that is similar to other protest movements. And the reason for that is precisely what uh, your question really alludes to and that is how how do you incorporate a people from different social classes uh, if you do not organize horizontal networks, allowing, if you don't mind me saying, ease of entry? That is not only, of course, middle class, let's say, young people, but also workers and peasants, and most importantly, or equally important in Sudan, to bring in people not only from the urban areas and elite backgrounds, but from all over the country peasants in Darfur, workers in Port Sudan at the port who continue to go on strike even to this day. And the best way that the young people, the activist leaders decided that that was going to occur uh, or to be made possible is to organize horizontal networks. And that is really one of the achievements of that uh, grand revolution uh, that really brought all of these different social groups and classes absent ideological differences, which in the past, of course, had blunted any form of uh, progressive politics in Sudan. Another aspect is, and I think people don't often really highlight, and I'd like to do it because it uh, speaks to the bravery of these young people. And what I mean by that is the horizontal networks allowed for what in Sudan uh, call the kind of so-called cat and mouse game that is required in order to evade the surveillance and the brute force of the coercive apparatus. In meticulous fashion, uh, grassroots organizations eventually led by what we call in Sudan the resistance committees. And these are uh, basically working class groups depending on the neighborhood, but also middle class as well. Uh, Once again, also uh, organized horizontally, um, insisting on the absence of ideological bias in order to unify. Uh, But these are the resistance committees that work tirelessly and courageously, and they continue to do so, uh, to evade the police, to evade the paramilitary militias, to evade the security forces, that were established under the Islamist authoritarian regime in order to do two things, put down insurgencies in Darfur, for example, but also to stop any 
grassroots pro-democracy movements. And that is the unique aspect of uh, the revolution and the organization. Another aspect, and here I think it's worthy, and I've published on it if your if your uh, listeners are interested, in, is in addition to the horizontal networks by um, early uh, to 2019, it was recognized by the um, youth activists um, and the political parties that the only way to actually overthrow this regime was to have some kind of coordination, some kind of uh, cooperation between those who are working class and those in the political parties. Uh, And that is where you had the establishment of something called the Declaration for the Forces of Freedom of Change. The Forces of Freedom of Change then were able to do two things. One of them, of course, was to mobilize um, people across uh, the the country, but another one was to really um, kind of signal to the international community that uh, they were prepared to oversee uh, a transition to democracy. And that is when you begin to have some support from external actors for the transition to a democracy in Sudan after uh, 30 years of dictatorial rule. At the risk of sounding cynical, um, the question I have here would be, how does the uh, the revolution, the protest movement, the uprising, whatever we want to call it, how does it expect or how did it expect to survive. I mean, it, it, it didn't, ha- it was caught between two militant forces and we've seen what happens in previous instances. I'm thinking of course of Tahrir Square in Egypt, where you did have a democracy movement, but ultimately once it's caught between two violent apparatuses, like what you're referring to, it's ultimately steamrolled. And of course, CC provides a perfect example of that in Egypt. So in Sudan, in, you know, in a neighboring country of Sudan, where you have some conditions that are kind of similar in terms of the factional divides here. How did they ever expect to carry this out without being armed and involved in an insurrection? Well, uh, the reason I concluded with that vertical and horizontal coordination, parties versus grassroots organization, is that it speaks to, well, I, I thought that you would ask this question, and it's not a cynical one at all. It is the contradiction Um, of a movement um, uh, that um, begins uh, and is successful because of its grassroots mobilization, uh, not only among uh, middle-class young people, but also working-class people and peasants and farmers and nomads throughout the country with political middle-class and bourgeois political parties with their own political instrumental interest. In Sudan, at the time when this coalition occurred and the talks between the military and the civilian leadership began, there was a huge debate that speaks directly to your question. Um, That is the choice between a soft landing and that is a cooperation with the military elite in order to transition to a a democracy or a hard landing in which um, the forces of the revolution, the progressive forces, would stand steadfast against any compromise, any dialogue, any negotiations. What happened, to answer your question and just to highlight how important it is, following particularly uh, the military coup of October 2021, where the military leadership decided to completely you know, reverse the trend towards a democratization, the three no's emerged. That is that hard landing position returns 
particularly on the part of the youth and the resistance committees that continued to fight and were pro protesting daily against the military coup. And those three no's are no legitimacy, no, uh, no negotiations, um, and um, no uh, partnership. Uh, that returns us to trying to resolve, uh, some would say too late, but I don't think so, uh, because, you know, these things happen and are uh, cumulative, returns to that position of the hard land, uh, landing and the understanding uh, that it is important to learn from the mistakes of the past. And that mistake, crucially and historically, was to actually acquiesce under the auspices, of course, and the pressure of the international community, including the United States, for a compromise with the military leadership and a transition to a civilian-led, not, not, not a civilian full democracy, but a civilian-led democracy in which the military would have a role. And this is the contradiction that led, A, to the military coup of October 2021, and it is the tragic contradiction that le led to this uh, fighting that begins in April 15th. Tragically predictable. Tragically extremely predictable. That's exactly right. But it was predicted by, by the majority, not the majority, but many, many Sudanese. I just want to, this is why your show is so important. I'm not telling Sudanese anything new here, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not telling the youth activists and grassroots organizers and protesters anything new at all. And this is why I wanted to return to the history of where that uh, debate began. Now, that has to do with, um, I'd like to also mention, uh, because I know that your viewers are very nuanced uh, progressives, and that is, it is difficult to organize uh, and be cohesive and have internal democratization among progressive organizations, including unions and resistance committees, if you have not had the opportunity to organize for 30 decades, uh, for rather three decades. 30 years of repression against unions, uh, 30 years of uh, the complete uh, clamping down on any forms of protest or dissent, um, 30 years of the co-optation uh, of unions, and the crucial aspect that is very unique in Sudan, I believe, in the region, and that is despite that, despite all of that kind of what we call um, corporate authoritarianism, where unionization and union life is stopped, where you know uh, popular dissent is uh, repressed, what you had is the emergence of what we call in Sudan parallel unions, uh, taking the initiative to organize informally absent uh, any kind of, of formal regulation. Uh, that, of course, was one of the important aspects that made, led to the success of the revolution. But it also speaks to the weakness of consolidating the revolution in the sense that there was no chance for internal democratization within the context of those informal unions and professional associations. Uh, many people now, of course, are working towards um, really trying to democratize and legitimize uh, not only these organizations, but also their membership and members as well in terms of their participation, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And um, I'm going to have to run rapidly through our remaining subjects since we are running out of time. I want to ask you, because of course, the people in the, people in the West, when you're looking at uh, Africa or really any place in the global South, often want to reduce the understanding of a conflict to one, maybe two dimensions. Right? This is about a rivalry between the United States and China and Russia, or this is about uh, local rivalry in the Horn of Africa, or this is about Arabs versus Africans, or whatever. And we, of course, know that the conflict is the product of many sort of overlapping conflicts, sometimes in contradiction with each other. But I do want to ask you to explain for 
our listeners and viewers what role tribal and or ethnic divisions have played in this conflict. Is there a clear dividing line? Are the tribal and ethnic groups themselves divided one side uh, on one side versus on another side? How does that play out and what role do those divides play? That's a really important question, and it's not a uh, it's not a question that uh, should be taken lightly. And the reason for that is that if one was to suppose that this was a tribal conflict, um, that you had different factions siding with different, um, let's say, military factions or different groups in civil society, we would not have an understanding of what the character and the root of this conflict is. And more importantly, even than that, we would not understand that the majority and let me emphasize here, the overwhelming majority of the Sudanese population for the first time in in history is opposed to both factions. That is counterintuitive. Uh, because civil wars, as defined in Africa and elsewhere, uh, don't really uh, take into account conflicts that are essentially between two military establishments. Um, and so I would go out on a limb, not, it's not such a limb, but I've done it before, and to be very clear that this is not a civil war. This is not a civil war, uh, and I teach civil war, for, and I have for 20 years. This is not a civil war. Uh, it is really a conflict between uh, two former partners in the military establishment um, that uh, have now, um, especially following the negotiations prior to this conflict, realized that uh, both their political power and the economic gains uh, that they amassed uh, together, by the way, since the conflict in Darfur and under the Islamist regime of Omar Bashir, uh, through coercive, illicit means, including not only the hoarding of oil, but the domination of the domestic economy, the building of the deep state, the smuggling of oil and resources, all of that um, really would be lost um, or taken by one or the other. Um, even though they had partnered to dominate the country politically, economically, and militarily. And so this conflict is really about uh, two individuals, two military institutions, one, a weakened Sudan armed forces, a military that is led by uh, the former remnants of the Islamist uh, military appointed by the former regime um, in an organization that is called the Committee for the Intelligence Security of the Armed Forces, um, and uh, versus a militia that was born and formed in the context of the conflict in Darfur and was utilized by Bashir to stamp out uh, dissent locally. And so it's very important to emphasize this is not um, a tribal conflict between one group and the other. Even the conflict in Darfur, uh, really that kind of designation uh, really undermines what we really um, have to emphasize, and that is a future of radical transformation. Uh, a, A future of radical transformation in the terminology of the activist and progressive forces in Sudan requires a clear analysis that this is not a tribal conflict, and the conflict in Darfur and elsewhere is first and foremost a result of the kind of uh, central politics uh, and the the political greed and economic greed of these two leaders uh, that are heading these two different factions. I hope that that makes sense. That does not mean that external forces don't um, uh, matter. In fact, this analysis allows us, Eric, to actually highlight Uh, The fact that just as the regime in Sudan used proxy militias to put down the insurgency in Darfur, uh, the same happens in a larger level regionally and internationally. 
uh, understanding that this is a fight between two military components or components of military institutions allows us to understand the ways in which external actors can so easily, deftly, and tragically and horribly actually uh, promote and support their proxy clients uh, for their own political, strategic, and economic interest in Sudan and in the region. But understanding it in the, in the context of civil conflict does not allow us to understand how the intervention support and how these two individuals and, and uh, military components are utilized as proxies uh, by external actors, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, you're segueing us nicely into our last uh, last bit of this conversation here. Talk to me a little bit about the role of regional uh, powers that are influential in Sudan. Of course, the Saudis are a major player. The Emiratis, uh, they're a major player as well. Egypt is, of course, always involved in anything that is uh, regionally relevant to Sudan. Uh, what, and of course, we know Russia's presence as well. Can you talk a little bit about the role that the Saudis and the Emiratis have played in backing the factions here and in what capacity, if any, they have exacerbated some of these problems and what they hope to gain out of Sudan. Well, let's begin with uh, uh, to make sure that your listeners are aware that external actors had a great uh, role to play in the undermining of the revolution itself. We spoke at length, I think, Eric, about the local issues and contradictions, um, but that would have not uh, necessarily, ultimately, I would argue, completely undermined some of the most important objectives of the revolution in Sudan, were it not for the so-called soft landing and compromises that were supported and pressured by the international community. That includes the United Kingdom, um, of course, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and of course, um, you know, the United States, which is really important. Um, and then very quickly to emphasize that point, following the October 2021 coup, Burhan, which was really against account accountability and, uh, and against uh, you know, the objective of social justice to undermine the transition to full democracy. Um, protests continued on a daily basis, leading international actors uh, to come to the table or bring to the table both the militia leader, uh, Hemeti, and uh, the head of the army, uh, Burhan, who are fighting today, uh, and try to force them into compromising along certain items called um, uh, under the framework of something called the framework agreement. Um, I'm not going to detail all of those uh, elements, but just to highlight that the framework agreement was orchestrated and um, overseen by external actors, uh, the United States, uh, United Kingdom, Saudi Arabia in particular, the United, the United Nations as well. And that becomes really important. That was another um, you know, uh, tragic compromise uh, because the contentious issues uh, having to do with accountability and social justice, the importance of dismantling the deep state and the kind of ill-gotten gains uh, that have undermined the Sunnese economy, and of course the contentious issue of uh, of um, bringing or merging uh, the militia into a one standing army were essentially not uh, a postponed or uh, or b uh, under international auspices. Um, what happened is that they were uh, given very short time even to negotiate. Imagine uh, asking that uh, a, a security sector reform should be finalized or agreed upon uh, within a course of a couple of months. 
Um, the, just like in the past with the peace agreement of the South, there was also the exclusion of the most important civilians, including the young people and revolutionary forces and civil society actors. Okay, So that is one element where the international community, including the United States, not only dropped the ball, but also uh, worked in tandem with those uh, militia leaders and the military leader in order to undermine uh, the process towards democratization. At a regional level, the economic interest in strategic interest, of course, uh, really undermine not only uh, the, the revolution, but they help to explain the, the present conflict. Um, and it is, uh, let's just uh, look at the regional actors quickly. Um, in the case of Egypt, historically, the idea for Egypt is to have a reliable military leader. Uh, and in this case, Burhan, of course, is to be the chosen one uh, for a number of reasons. One of them, of course, Egypt and Sudan are so close politically and culturally that the so-called, and I'm quoting, you know, putting in quotations, the contagion of democratic forces and progressive forces, the, you know, the possibility of, of uh, a second Tahrir is something that the Egyptian central government and Sisi are very aware of. Another reason to have a reliable, stable military partnership with Sudan and supporting Burhan, of course, has to do with the Nile waters, which are existential to uh, Egyptian interest, and of course, its conflict with Ethiopia. Uh, so from the uh, perspective of Egypt, it's essential uh, that there be a reliable partner. Dem democracy or a democratic government from the Egyptian government's perspective is not a reliable partner for these two reasons from their perspective. And this is why they support the military uh, uh, um, uh, leader, Burhan. The United Arab Emirates role is, um, I would argue, uh, very important economically. Um, and that is that historically with Saudi Arabia, they have utilized um, the militia of Hemeti to provide mercenary forces for their war in Yemen. And they paid him millions of dollars to do that. In addition, the United Arab Emirates uh, uh, generates a great deal of revenue from the gold smuggled to its markets in Dubai that uh, eventually through Wagner in another uh, instance also goes to, to Ukraine. Um, and another aspect is the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia have vast billions of dollars worth of interest in land assets and agriculture in Sudan. And so that's those are the main regional actors and their support of the different parties um, is uh, problematic in terms of understanding the roots of the conflict, but also um, why it is so difficult to resolve the conflict at the moment through a ceasefire or a permanent peace. And we know about the Russian role in terms of all of the reports about Russian uh, gold, access to gold reserves that are being used to kind of insulate Russia from the sanctions, the problems it's had with regard to U.S. sanctions and so forth. So we know about that. I want to just make a point, since we don't have enough time to talk about it, I would recommend uh, listeners and viewers go and read up a little bit on the uh, GERD, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which is really the project that uh, Khalid was referring to with regard to damming the Nile waters and Ethiopia's Chinese finance project, which creates a whole series of other issues that we don't have time to talk about now. But in closing, um, I just want to ask you very briefly, if you could, to just tell us a little bit about, and unfortunately, we're relegating this to just a minute or two, but the impact on the people, the people in Sudan, how is this impacting what was already a flow of refugees? How is this impacting what was already uh, mostly uh, dysfunctional institutions inside of the country, social services and so forth? Can you just explain that a little bit just in the last couple of minutes? 
Well, thank you, Eric, for concluding with that. I think it is difficult to describe and put into words. Um, um, it is a horrible humanitarian crisis uh, on a number of different levels. Um, one of them, of course, is the capital city itself is uh, and has been under siege since April 15th. Um, that has led to not only scores of, uh, of people killed, civilians, uh, but essentially um, a humanitarian crisis in which uh, people have no access to basic food, uh, to water, uh, they have no access to medicine, um, one horrific story after another. And this affects all of the different ethnic groups residing in the capital. Uh, that kind of uh, dramatic, um, you know, horrific uh, humanitarian crisis is just one aspect. There is, of course, the um, uh, proxy militia, the rapid support forces also enacting violence um, and scorched earth po policies in Darfur. Another element of this humanitarian crisis is the influx of displaced persons and refugees hundreds of thousands trapped at the borders. And the reason your question is so important is that right now people are um, in prison, so to speak, in the country, in the sense that even if uh, people are able to flee the capital or free the war zones, uh, once they get to the borders of Egypt, Chad, Ethiopia, other places, they are stopped from going through in contradiction of international law on refugees and displaced persons. Uh, governments have become increasingly wary uh, of security concerns from their perspective. The United Nations has been very tepid, uh, tepid, even in really pushing for humanitarian intervention, uh, even as simple as to help refugees and displaced uh, persons, even though the United Nations has pledged just a couple of days ago 1.5 billion. Uh, we don't know where that is going. Um, and that is really important because we know that both factions historically and continue to use, and this is another element of the tragedy, divert food and aid to their own uh, you know, militia and loyalists. Um, in ways to really uh, undermine the well-being and safety and uh, life of the majority of Sudanese. So the country has not in its history gone through such a, a huge humanitarian crisis and war. Um, and Sudanese diaspora um, are all over the world are mobilizing to try to get humanitarian assistance uh, as a first step uh, before anything else to try to save people's lives and the lives of their families. Absolutely. So much more to say, but we're going to have to leave it there. Khalid Medani has been with me today. KhalidMedani.com is the website. You can see all of his work there, and I would highly recommend the book, Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa. That was published in 2022. Khalid Medani, thank you so much for coming to Counterpunch and chatting with us today. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for covering the story. We all appreciate it very much. Thank you, Khalid. Thank you, listeners and viewers, as always, for the continued support. And we will talk again next week. Uh -huh.